Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Centric Health of Bakersfield. Welcome to Bakersfield Observe with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bakersfield Observed Podcast with Richard Bean. I'm your host, Richard Bean. We're broadcasting today from the American General Media Complex here on Eastern Drive, right off Highway 99 in downtown Baco. I'm here in studio, accompanied by Mr. J.R. Flores. He's the producer of this podcast. He was also the producer of the Richard Bean Radio Show, as well as the Ralph Bailey Show. Best in the business, as I like to call Mr. Flores. We're going to be talking in a minute with a fellow named Bill Gentile. This will be episode six of the podcast. You can find this podcast on Spotify, on Kern Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is episode six. As I said, we're going to be talking to a fellow named Bill Gentile, who's written a book, just came out, available on Amazon and elsewhere, called Wait For Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll. It's a little, it's a story about our collected history. It's an examination of this country's foreign policy during a very critical time during the 1980s. It talks about how this country has wielded its influence and some of the manifestations of that, which we're experiencing today. And mostly it's a story about how a young man from Pennsylvania found himself chronicling one of the bloodiest upheavals in Central American history over the course of decade, chronicling the wars in not, not only Nicaragua, but El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. We'll be talking to Bill Gentile in a minute. Uh, Mr. Flores. Welcome to July 1st. How are you, sir? Oh, God is good, Richard. Just blessed to spend this afternoon with you and the listeners out there. How are you, sir? I'm doing terrific. We're getting, I'm getting a lot of good feedback on this podcast, which makes me happy in ways you have no idea, Mr. Flores. I appreciate it. I love the format here. I love having you here working with me. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, I, I enjoy getting to see you once a week. I, I've seen you more in the last month uh, or during the time of this podcast than I did all of last year. Sir. That's that's true. So there's we have We're that. We're back in studio. That's right. Fully vaccinated. Right. Well, uh, some of us. Well, some of, That's right. You were not vaccinated. You can't but ask you me. But you had it. You can't ask me about my medical records, Richard. <laughs> Don't start off. <laughs> Don't start on me. <laughs> I can't even ask you about your gender. I can't even ask you about your pronouns, much less whether well, you're vaccinated. Well, here's here's the thing, Richard. You mentioned uh, uh, genders and and vaccinations. Right. Uh, we we can let a kid decide whether or not they want to be a boy or a girl, but right. they don't get to decide whether or not they have the right to be vaccinated or not. Oh, very good. 
Does that make sense? It makes no sense. No None sense. of this makes any sense, JR. We're, we're in a period where the world is upside down. Here, right? honey, you but can pick whether you want to be a boy or a girl, but take this shot in your arm and you have no choice. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Huh? Unbelievable. It, look, it's not going to be long. We're going to have our masks back on, JR. Well, yeah. yeah, that Delta variant, you know. Yeah, yeah the Delta variant. Don't, you have yeah. to worry about that. that yeah. Southwest Airlines one is the one after that. <laughs> It's even worse. <laughs> it's perfect. And the Alaskan Airlines one. And <laughs> oh, Jr. Bill Cosby. Well, I was going to say who? Who? Uh, there's. Uh, who'd you rather be right now, Bill Whoa. Cosby or <laughs> Rich Bean? <laughs> who, who saw that coming? Uh, he didn't. Well, he, he here, can't see anything, Richard. Okay, Jr. What the hell happened? I don't understand <laughs> how we got to this point. Where America wake America goes to bed one day thinking sixty something women have come forward to accuse this guy of rape, right? And dropping Mickeys in their drinks, right? And the next day he is out because of a technicality that nobody knew existed. How the hell did this happen? Uh, bad lawyers, bad prosecutors, bad district attorneys. So a promise, <laughs> a promise was made to a previous prosecutor that was not honored, and that was cited to, to basically clear him forever. Well, the the way I've kind of heard it, read it, looked at it is, uh, it, it's a technicality. He was promised uh, that he wouldn't be prosecuted during a civil trial, which which he was given a, a deposition, and he was told that what he says there can't be used against him, if, if, I'm, if I'm understanding that right. And in that, he admitted to uh, drugging women. Right. And, and I guess they used that during this trial, and they weren't, they weren't supposed to. I don't... I, how does this happen? How, how do career prosecutors in charge look you know if you're trying to put bill cosby america's father in jail you're not putting a rookie on that thing how do you screw the how do you how do you not know that a previous promise has been made that you can't violate that i don't know that why why the prosecutor or the the current district attorney didn't know what the previous district attorney had promised them i i don't know how bill cosby's lawyers allowed uh, him even to go to trial and end up in how did they jail. not know how did they not know uh yeah it's just it's just bizarre I, i'd be upset yeah. if i was bill all right so if, if you were one of can you imagine what these what these victims feel like these 60 women i mean who ha, ha, at least got some degree of satisfaction that their attacker or their violator was in prison, and now, to my knowledge, he can't be tried again for Correct. those? Correct. He, he, the judge said this does not exonerate him. This does not uh, clear him of, of charges or say that he's an innocent man. It's clearly a, just a technicality that he's being released, and uh, they cannot try him again. Did you know the woman who played his wife on the Cosby show? Yeah, I can't remember. Felicia Rashad, I believe. Rashad, yeah. right. And apparently, she's a dean at Howard University in D.C. Yeah, and she had a good, uh, pretty good post yesterday, I think. It came out uh, totally in, in free, his favor. Or, yeah, something you know? like that, yeah. And you wonder, you know, they were wondering, you know, somebody, somebody was wondering, what kind of signals does that send to young men and women at Howard who, who may have been violated in some way, and yet their dean, 
you know, is strictly out of loyalty is, is, has come to his, to his side. We'll see if there's yeah. a repercussion. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you got to remember when this all happened, Richard, the, the Me Too movement was in full effect, full force. Mm. And so uh, I think maybe that played into a little bit of the prosecutors not maybe looking back and going, hey, we can't do this. They were just kind of like, hey, this Me Too movement and we got to get this guy in jail. Uh, but you, with Felicia Rashad and, and a lot of, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say liberals or Democrats or, or, or something, but you're almost running into conflicts now because you're me too movement and you want bill in jail, yeah. but, but now you have a free black man and, yeah. and you're going, uh, wait a second. Do we want him out? Do we not want him out? Because yeah. Yeah. on one hand it's the me too movement, but on the other hand it's the, yeah, so they're Absolutely all confused over cra- there. Crazy, it's it, man, it's a crazy time, man. It is. It's like ever since the pandemic, it, it, things have just been upside down. You can't. You, you, the old, the old assumptions are gone, Jr. That's what I'm figuring. Right, right. So they're going to usher all the old people like me out, and we're going to start new. Right. Okay. Right. Can we start with Biden? Yeah. <laughs> Did you catch that whispering stuff he was doing? What was that about? <laughs> That was creepy. I was like, <laughs> who told him that was a good idea? I have no idea. You know, who told him that was a good I idea? I have no idea. Oh, God. No idea. Good God, what are you going to do? Is he going to make it? I, you know, <laughs> here's the reason why I'm not going to. You don't want to answer that question. I don't want to answer that question because no, look, it, be, I honestly don't know. I mean, a lot of us have relatives who've lived <laughs> a lot longer than we damn well thought they should, right? <laughs> They're like the walking dead. I'm not going to mention mine, but you know. So he could surprise you, kind of you just dodder it, but it wouldn't surprise this is a terrible thing to say, Jr. But if something like there were like a stroke or something, well, I, you know, I, I look at it or, like this, Richard. Uh, at some point, they eventually take your driver's license away because <laughs> you're just not capable of operating a motor vehicle. And if that's the case, you probably shouldn't be president either. You don't think? I'm just saying. <laughs> well, you know, Ronald Reagan used to fall asleep during the cabinet meeting, so you well, remember that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let, let's move on here and get to episode six. Uh, of the podcast. The book is Wait For Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll. We're talking to Bill Gentile, who is the author of a new book. I just uh, bought my copy on Amazon. It's called Wait For Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll. Bill Gentile, we'll get into Bill's credentials here in a minute. This is an incredible book, folks. If you're a student of history, if you're a student of foreign policy, and particularly if you're a student of current events and watching things go on, not only in our hemisphere, but around the world and even along our border, this book will resonate with you. Bill Gentile had a front row seat to one of the most tumultuous Uh, bloodiest times in the history of Central America. He lived there. Bill is originally from Pennsylvania, but he was living in both Mexico City and then later in Nicaragua and watched these stories and covered them as a war correspondent and a photojournalist in a way that we have all come to admire. He was there watching these things unfold. The book is a a collection of his thoughts about what it was like being a frontline journalist there on the lines, what it meant, what it meant to be 
not only frontline journalists, but Bill became part of Nicaraguan society. He mar married a Nicaraguan woman who was with the Sandinista government. This book covers a lot of ground. I would urge you all to look it up. Once again, it's called Wait For Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll. A little bit about Bill Gentile before we get him on the phone here. He's an independent national Emmy-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker. Teaches now at American University. By the way, we had Bill on this program a few years ago when he came out with a National Geographic, I think they were associated with it, uh, piece on freelancers in Central America. Bill covered the 1979 Sandinista Revolution and the U.S.-backed Contra War in Nicaragua, as well as the Salvadoran Civil War, the U.S. invasion of Panama in 89, the 1994 invasion of Haiti, the 1990 Persian uh, uh, Gulf War and wars in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. I think I got the date wrong on the Haiti invasion, but we'll, we'll let that go. He's also director and executive producer of the documentary series Freelancers with Bill Gentile, distributed by had the Walt Disney Company. I hope that's right. Uh, this book is important. It, it, it tells the story of a a young American's love affair with a region and its people and its struggles. As I said, Bill would go on and he'd, he'd marry a Nicaraguan woman. He married into the culture. He'd become part of that culture. He would live and breathe uh, with, the, with the people in that part of the world. It tells a story so familiar that it traces to almost biblical times. It's a story of how a proud people are faced to endure extreme, almost unbelievable violence and heartache of a nation torn apart as a pawn in a game of chess among superpowers, and how so many decades later we're left to deal with the aftermath. And lastly, I think to me at least, it tells the story of U.S. foreign policy that was so blinded with Cold War fears that it sets the course that will change a region uh, completely. And finally, as I leave him on the line, as a personal aside, I became friends with Bill Gentile in New York City in the early 80s when we both worked for United Press International. I knew him in Mexico City where we both lived. And finally, I will always be grateful for Bill Gentile's assistance and kindness to me during my many trips to Nicaragua in the mid-1980s. I was based in Mexico City at the time. Bill was living in, in uh, Managua. He was the real thing. He was the guy on the ground. People like me would parachute in every few months, but Bill was the real deal. I'll also say this he deals with in his book. I'll always remember fondly uh, an international jeep that Bill called, called La Bestia, which means the beast in Spanish. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Bill Gentile. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Rick, and thank you so much for the uh, the generous introduction. It's really great to be back here with you. Well, I appreciate it. Bill, let's start. Let's start. Why this book now? What, uh, how long have you been working on it? And uh, tell me what you set out to, to accomplish. You know, it, it, it's been an extraordinary journey, this book, Rick. You know, uh, I've written pieces of this thing along the way. But while I was in Nicaragua, after, after leaving Nicaragua, you know, uh, I have the extraordinary uh, good fortune of still in my possession having, you know, a footlocker full of, of reporters' notebooks that I, you know, have reviewed for this book when I really started to write it in earnest in 2019. But I've got, you know, written and visual, because I'm a, I'm a visual journalist. I'm a, I'm a, I was a photojournalist for Newsweek magazine during most of the Contra War and the, war in, the Civil War in, in El Salvador. And I've got tens of thousands of images. Uh, the, the, some of them were published in Newsweek magazine, some in the New York Times 
magazines and, and outlets all over the world. So I've got this visual and printed record of, of you know, the past 40 years um, you know, that I reviewed for this book. And as you go through the book, you can tell that I, I, I draw from, from these various sources of information to put together the last 40 years of my life and to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 as you mentioned, I've covered a lot of conflict around the world, but I don't call myself a war photographer or a war correspondent out of respect for people who have done a lot more of that kind of coverage than I have. Um, I, I had, in Nicaragua, I had the extraordinary privilege of being connected, essentially, you know, kind of being uh, adopted by a Nicaraguan family, um, uh, my my first wife's family, who were, you know, closely linked to the Sandinista movement and so forth. So they opened so many doors for me. They were so generous. Uh, you know, me, a, 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 an American citizen whose country was waging, you know, a so-called secret war during the Reagan administration against their own country, um, um, you know, they allowed me into their family and, 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 and from that perspective, uh, I, I was able to witness and to associate with Nicaraguan society on a level that the vast majority of journalists simply don't have the good fortune to, to have access to. I had access to that, and, and as one reviewer of, of, of Wait For Me uh, wrote, um, I didn't just cover Nicaragua and the region, I lived it. Uh, so that, that, was, that was, you know, the... the, the the background for my time in, in Central America. What do I want to achieve for this? I want people to, to get a, a real sense of the human cost of war. As you know, because you've read the book, you know, it's a series of vignettes. It's a, it's a, a series of stories that, that by the end of the book, I hope that, that readers get a sense of, of me, of the main characters in the book, of, of the, the level of violence in the book, um, of, of, you know, the result of, 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 uh, of U.S. foreign policy overseas, um, I, I, want, I, I want them to get a sense of w- the human cost of war uh, that we many times uh, uh, sponsor and pay for overseas and what that means to other people um, in, in who, are, who, who are part of the collateral damage of those conflicts. Um, you know, if we have time, I have, you know, I've, I've cut out a couple of pieces of the book here, and I'm happy to read a, a, a few of them. They're not terribly long. I, I wish you would. Can, can we start off with the first one, uh, Bill, that kind of sets the stage for the book? It Absolutely. Put, it puts it's, it's the, the reader on the, on and, the and, road and, with you. Uh, why don't we start there? Yeah. Okay. So here we go. A colleague and I are bombing down a dirt road in the mountains of northern Nicaragua, when a couple of Sandinista army vehicles are coming at us from the opposite direction. These are the Jeep-style vehicles used by Sandinista field commanders in the war against CIA-backed Contra rebels, and it turns out that the driver in the lead vehicle is Lieutenant Francisco Noel Talavera, and we both slam on the brakes to say hello. Talavera is a 19-year-old from the northern mountain city of Hinotega. He has a bad complexion and the habit of spitting through the gap in his upper two front teeth. He also happens to be commander of three of the seven companies in the elite Simon Bolivar Battalion of the Sandinista People's Army. Talavera has an extraordinary sense of himself, of the importance of his role, and of his ability to execute that role. There's a cordiality between us from the start. By this time covering the conflict, I had been on so many missions with the soldiers and had gotten to know the battalion commanders so well that they would just take me out into the field with them whenever I showed up. 
I'm a photojournalist covering the war anytime I want to, as opposed to doing what the rest of the MOOCs in the Foreign Press Corps are required to do before heading north to the mountains. They have to go through the Sandinista Defense Ministry with a written, requ written request that could take weeks or forever to get through the bureaucracy being getting, before getting a, a written permit to go north where the war is being waged. On this morning, Talavera asks if, if I and my, uh, uh, I'm sorry, on this morning, Talavera asks if I would like to accompany him and his troops on a mission so my colleague and I look at each other and go something like, fucking A. It is the end of a long hike when Talavera's scouts spot Contras on a nearby hillside. He waits for his enemies to settle around their campfires on top of the hill, allowing his own men a more visible and more compact target. Talavera pulls his soldiers, all of them crawling on their stomachs, up to the clearing on our hill, to positions that enable them to get a clear shot at the enemy. The peasants, whose home is situated at the edge of the clearing where Talavera's men take position, crouch behind their rough-hewn board hut. Scratched into the slats of wood are etchings made by the hand of a child. They look like cave drawings by Neanderthals in dark European caverns. But these don't show woolly mammoths or sleek gazelles. They show gigantic birds, monsters really, breathing fire. Their eyes are made of glass. They have strange circular wings mounted on their backs. Stick figures of people lie dead on the ground. Helicopters, dead Sandinistas, dead Contras, dead peasants. Oh, Bill, uh, that that sets the tone for a book. And let me tell you, it just gets better there. Once again, I, uh, uh, Bill, you re you referred to us hopefully lovingly as MOOCs, the rest <laughs> the, the rest of the press corps. And, 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 and for people listening, this is an important distinction that people like me, I lived in Mexico City at the time. Uh, said we covered the region. We actually covered a lot more than that. I mean, I had a lot of responsibilities covering the, the, the country of Mexico. But as you noted, we would fly in, uh, stay for a couple weeks, and fly out. You were there all the time. What was it like being on the ground? You had access to to a lot of the Sandinista Party officials because of the family you married into. You had unfettered access. And uh, as a journalist, Bill, people like you uh, were so incredibly important and also helpful to people like me who would float in. And as you as you correctly noted, the first place we'd go is check in with the defense ministry about we're in town. We'd like to do X. You operated under a different set of rules. What was that like? It was extraordinary rick i i have to tell you you know because of the contacts that i had in the country now don't forget you know i was there in 1979 covering the revolution mm -hmm. so you know the combination of that prior experience being there at the very beginning of this entire process uh you know that in many people's eyes validated my presence in the country during the 1980s uh, a contra war uh, and in my contacts with, with Claudia's family, Claudia being my first wife, uh, her family was associated with the Sandinista, Sandinista government at that time, at any rate. Uh, but things have changed. Um, uh, it, 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 gave me, it gave me extraordinary uh, uh, access. And, you know, people think that, uh, that at that time the Sandinista government had its finger on everything that was happening around the country. To be honest, 
um, I, I didn't find the, the, the regulations that prohibitive. You know, with the Bestia, who you mentioned in, in the introduction mm -hmm. to the piece, my four-wheel drive uh, off-road vehicle, I was able to get to places that most Nicaraguans never, never saw. And with the, the journeys that I made, you know, in the mountains with either the Sandinistas or the countries, you know, allowed me to sing, see things that, that most Nicaraguans had, had never seen or were, were unwilling to, to, to go to, 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 to try to see. Um, and that was another fascinating part of, the, of, of this whole war. You know, don't forget, this was, this was an extraordinary time. As you say, it was, it was a tail end of the Cold War. But also, it was a time when, when you know, people had respect for and even reverence of journalists. They, we were perceived, especially by the poor, in, in, in Central America, we were, we were perceived as being, you know, seasoned professionals, people who were there uh, with no ulterior motives, who wanted to find out the truth and who wanted to, wanted to expose many of the, the, uh, the, the conditions and, and the, the, the violations of human rights and the indignities that were inflicted upon them by the powers that controlled their own country and that were part, partly responsible for, for, you know, the, the you know, the sad conditions in which so many of these peoples lived. Um, you know, in, in Nicaragua, uh, the government was, was wary of particularly American journalists because they thought we might be CIA agents. Uh, um, you know, uh, it, in, in El Salvador, uh, it was the, the, the government, that, you know, who we were supporting were, you know, kind of welcomed us. Uh, but the guerrillas thought that, that we were, we were uh, you know, a CIA agents. So, but, but everybody in the region, because all the countries in Nicaragua, in, in Central America, tend to move in tandem, all of these countries, the people, the, the main actors of these countries understood that they had to play ball with us. They had to play ball with the, the, the American media. Again, this was before there was Facebook, before there was Gmail, before there was, you know, the Internet. There was no Internet. It was the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, uh, Newsweek magazine, Time magazine, mm -hmm. Um, the Wall Street Journal, Miami Herald, you know, Los Angeles Times, a couple of big organizations like that, and we were it. We controlled the perception of these players in Washington, D.C., the city where I'm sitting in right now. Why? Because, you know, we, the people who were, who were working journalists at that time, uh, uh, we were the sources of information that depicted who these folks really were. The Sandinistas wanted to be perceived not as, as, as crazed communists. They wanted to be perceived as, as, as you know, liberators from a terrible uh, uh, Somoza regime. Um, uh, the, the, the Contras wanted to be perceived as, as freedom fighters. In El Salvador, the government wanted to be perceived not as violators of human rights, but, of, but of, of, you know, of, of reliable allies of the United States. And the guerrillas wanted to be perceived as, as liberators and, and you know, not, not you know, they're really, really tough and sometimes uh, very, very dogmatic leftists as they were. So, you know, I was one of the people who had the incredible good fortune of working for one of these main, uh, uh, news, you know, main uh, news outlets uh, um, and, 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 and the, again, the, the main players in the region understood that they had to give us access to some degree. Does, yeah. that, does that make sense at all? Absolutely. And I, as a matter of fact, you brought that up, and I was going to bring it up. It's on page 80, uh, 88 that Bill, Bill writes, I had the extra, 
extraordinary privilege of having practiced the craft of journalism when the international media were largely regarded as independent observers and unbiased professionals seeking truth in some of the darkest, most complicated corners of the world. We were respected when I applied as a representative of UPI, United Press International, or Newsweek magazine for an interview or permission to accompany troops in the field. The recipients of that application understood they were playing with a member of the major leagues. They took me seriously. That is no longer the case, is it? No, it's no longer the case. It's no longer the case. The, 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 the virus um, that was initially spread by our former president um, has, has spread across the world. And now, um, you know, authoritarian uh, governments and their leaders are using uh, the claims of fake news and enemy of the people um, as their own license to repress their own populations and to and to violate uh, their citizens' rights. It's an extraordinarily um, a negative uh, um, outcome of this previous administration, and it's it's very very dangerous for for people, including some of the people, the young folks who I trained at American University, who want to go out there and work as foreign correspondents. You know, sending information back to the United States about what's happening to the rest of the world. It's made our job. It's made their job much more de- dangerous than it already is. Oh, absolutely. Bill, in, in you, you deal uh, sporadically in the book with your own personal past growing up in steel country in Pennsylvania. Would you mind reading an excerpt from Chapter 5? Not at all. Hang on one second. This chapter you know, is called The uh, Mills Giveth and the Mills Taketh Away. Yeah, yeah. It, it, my um, my uh, parents uh, uh, immigrated to the United States from Italy. I'm, the, I'm the, the very proud son and grandson of Italian immigrants. And and my my, my folks were, were born in a small town in, in, um, in Italy, about four hours' drive east of Rome. Um, I think when they lived there, it was a village of about 3,000 people. Now it's, a, it's about 2,000 people because a whole generation of people, you know, left the place. To, uh, to be able to work. And, and, and my family went to a small town of Aliquippa, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in southwest Pennsylvania, so that the men in the family could work in the steel mills. At that time, Pittsburgh was the steel capital of the world, and, and, and uh, that's where you know, immigrants from around the world went to, to work. Um, I myself, uh, aside from my father, my grandfather, my uncles, and my three brothers, I worked in, in those, uh, those steel mills outside of Pittsburgh, um, uh, to help get my way through college. And, and here's a, a brief several paragraphs on what that was like. I worked my way through college in these mills, and I learned very quickly that the mill assaults one's senses, wipes them out. I remember hearing the workplace long before even seeing it, coming through a tunnel that feeds workers into this Dante-esque world. A deep rumble is punctuated by train whistles, the crashing of railroad cars linking together, and the horns of riverboats crying sadder than loons on the nearby river. I get through the tunnel and see it all laying along the horizon, huge, black, rectangular steel buildings connected by wires with smokestacks taller than the buildings jut into the sky, eating up men and machines, spitting out smoke, fire, and steel. I step into a black and white world where everything is oversized, exaggerated, and lethal. In the summertime, The heat from the furnace and the metal that rolls out of its mouth comes at me like a wave of an explosion. 
In the wintertime, steel coming out of the furnace warms the air half a football field away. At nighttime, the white-hot steel turns the half-lit buildings to daytime. I understood that this was the fire that my father pointed out to us when, as kids, we drove past the place in our 1956 Plymouth. It's a menacing place. Just about everything around me can kill or maim. So I kept my eyes open and my limbs under control. I watched every move because I can lean against the wrong thing and get electrocuted. I can take a wrong step and fall to my death. I can put a hand in the wrong place and a machine will bite it off. I can look too close or in the wrong place and sparks will burn my eyes out. One of the other workers can bump against a stack of steel beams that will topple and crush my legs like a heavy boot on paper cups. Especially during the 12 midnight to 8 a.m. shift, I would take the opportunity to doze off on some of the wooden benches provided for workers during downtime. I was especially careful to keep my hands from hanging down to the ground out of concern that the rats populating the place would take a bite. Big rats. And I hate rats. <laughs> well said. <laughs> well said, Bill. You know, part of the part of the parts uh there's so much I love about this book, but you, you write with such great love and passion and respect for the people of the region, not only Nicaraguans, but others, but Nicaraguans in particular. And of course, we talked about Claudia, your first wife. Yeah. Uh, you talk about their, their hearts and their passions. And, but you know, Bill, to most Americans, these are just faceless people, you know, who now, People when Nicaragua is mentioned, it, it it you know people from Central America they're 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 storming the but the border. Talk to me if you can for a second about the Nicaraguan people. And I don't think a lot of one of the things I learned during my years down there were the Nicaraguan people were so different than the Salvadorans and the Guatemalans and the Hondurans. Yeah. They were all for being such a tiny place. They all had their eccentricities, their pride, uh, their own customs, their mores. Talk to me. Tell me something about the Nicaraguans that Americans should know. You know, this is interesting that you mentioned this, Rick. In my first book about Nicaragua, my, my book of photographs about the country, um, uh, the, the, the epilogue is a, a long interview with then-Vice President Sergio Ramirez, and we, we had a discussion about this very topic that you just raised, and, and Sergio, who is a very, very, you know, he's a terrific writer and a very astute observer of his own people. He, he, he pointed out that the, the, the culture of the Nicaraguan people is, is a result of, of two factors. One, um, the, the uh, indigenous people who lived in, in the area, in the region um, that is now Nicaragua, when the Spanish conquistadores first arrived there, and the makeup of the, the, the conquistadores themselves, uh, because, you know, in Spain, you can go to one region of the country that's very, very different in, in terms of culture, even in language, in, uh, uh, in their, their outlook on, on life um, from, from another region of the same country. So, you know, depending on those two factors, the, the makeup of the people from Spain who, who went to the New World and the, the indigenous folks who lived in the region when the conquistadores first got there. And, and although, you know, this... The thing that we call Central America is about the same size of, of California, and at the time that I was living there, it had about the same you know, number of people, I think about 20 million in, mm -hmm. in, in the whole region. 
they were separated by natural barriers, mountain ranges, mm-hmm. big rivers, swamps. Uh, uh, you know, so they, so the, 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 the cultures kind of grew up by themselves, although they were in a fairly contact, compact region. Mm-hmm. You know, I love Nicaragua more than any of the other countries because the people have a tremendous sense of humor. They've got a great sense of community. Um, they're more physically, uh, um, you know, appealing. Um, um, they're, they're outgoing. You know, the, the conflict that was in El Salvador, which is very, very close to, to Nicaragua, at the time, El Salvador was a, was a super overpopulated place. I think it still is. Um, uh, people live very, very close to each other. And I, I think that and, and the, uh, the character of the people that was forged by, you know, the, the types of Spaniards who arrived there and the, the type of, um, of indigenous folks who lived there when the Spaniards arrived, um, made th- their, their conflict, their civil war, so much more violent, mm. so much more uh, uh, inhumane, so much more dangerous to cover as a journalist um, than was the, 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 the two Nicaraguan uh, conflicts that I covered, the, the revolution and the, the Contra War. Um, so, you know, all of these factors came together. I mean, I, I, I loved living in Nicaragua. Uh, every time I went into El Salvador, as I write in the book, you know, my stomach you was... said tight. you'd hate it. It was spooky. Every, every time that yeah. my, my, you know, the plane touched down on a tarmac in, in, in San Salvador until the time that, that I was on another plane leaving the country, you know, and leaving the airspace and asking the, 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 the flight assistants for another glass of anything with alcohol in it, uh, <laughs> you know, my stomach would be in, in knots. That's, that's how tight that place got me. It was so very, very different. When I went to, back to, to, to Managua... I felt safe. Imagine that. Country Isn't that of war, interesting? Yeah. I felt safe. Yeah, right, right. I'll tell you, another spooky spot, at least for me, was Guatemala. Uh, at the time, there were a lot of death squads down there, and, and uh, that, that was a spooky spot, too. Let's talk a little bit about the time frame we, we were in, right? Because, uh, you, you know, people now, there are people now who say, uh, that what we're seeing at our own border is really a manifestation of the way that you know uh, uh, that the U.S. interfered in Central America in the '80s. You know, we funded a war against uh, we we funded the Contras against the Sandinista government. We supplied arms to a brutal regime in in Salvador. Did that interference in some way pave the way for the state of, of affairs today, or is, or is that a cheap shot? No, no, no. I think it's not a cheap shot at all. I think it's it's, it's right on it's right on target. I think that that uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, errors um, and misunderstandings by by uh, uh, U.S. policymakers was very much partly responsible for what's happening today. There's a, there's a, a section in my book that I cover. Um, it's on. I don't know if you have the book in front of you. It's page one fifty. I can read a couple of. Uh, yeah, on the Reagan administration. I wish you would. Yeah. Yeah, it's called the Reagan administration. It goes on for a page and a half. Almost two pages, actually. Um, it's important to remember the context of my time in Nicaragua. I'm reading from the book now. The Reagan administration's policy against the Sandinista government had really begun to impact the entire country, and all of the positive things the Sandinistas wanted to do were put on hold just to defend itself. Nicaragua was on a war footing. The government forced to shovel 60% of its gross national product into defense, and with the help of the Soviet Union, Cuba, East Germany, and other Soviet bloc states, the Sandinistas trained, armed, and shipped off their youth to the mountains to fight the Contras who who were being recruited, trained, and armed 
by the United States. The war, the devastating U.S. trade embargo, the draft, the killing, the fleeing of the youth, the exodus of the middle class, the capital flight, brain drain, the abandonment of farmland by peasants who sought safety in cities, the subsequent disruption of the labor force and of the nation's agricultural production, all of this was happening at the same time. To the north, American military forces arrived in Honduras for, quote, exercises, close quote, that bore an uncanny resemblance to U.S. preparations for invasion. Many of these, force, many of these forces rotated through the country, managed to leave behind tons of war material, stuff that mysteriously but inevitably found its way to Contra forces fighting the Sandinistas. U.S. military, quote, advisors, close quote, arm, train, and advise Contras staging raids into Nicaragua. CIA advisors teach the Contras how to, quote, neutralize, close quote, Sandinista activists. In this context, neutralize means kill. To the south, Costa Rica hosts former Sandinista war hero Eden Pastora. Pastora didn't like the way the Sandinistas were going, so he launched his own war against them. He was also getting sporadic American aid and advice. In El Salvador, the U.S.-backed government is busy fighting a civil war that in 10 years would claim 75,000 lives, most of them innocent civilians killed by government forces and right-wing death squads. In nearby Guatemala, the regime is carrying out a scorched-earth policy against the indigenous population that supports or is suspected of supporting anti-government guerrillas. And scorched earth in Guatemala means just that. It means soldiers surround the village, then go in and kill everybody and everything, men, women, children, dogs, cat, chickens, cows, monkeys, parrots. Soldiers bury the victims in mass graves or throw them into wells. Then they burn down the village. And that's how the earth gets scorched. To the great misfortune of her people, Central America had become one of the final battlegrounds of the Cold War. I believe it was Salvadoran Archbishop Oscar Arnulfo Romero who once most fittingly described Central America's dilemma caught in the middle of a struggle between two superpowers. Open quote. They provide the weapons and we provide the dead. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> that about says it all right, right there. Uh, Bill, you also write... Uh, you lived there again. You were so part of that culture. To me, I think that is the most fascinating thing, how much it, it changed you as a person. And you were perceptive and enjoyed the Nicaraguan way with profanity. And, yeah. and with, you, have, you have a wonderful chapter in there about what you call Nicaraguense. Is, is, is that pronounced correct? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it, it's sayings that are uh, uh, that are indigenous, so to speak, just to these cultures. Talk to me about uh, some of those. One of them is uh, let's go down. One of them's con la lengua en el piso, with the ton dragging on the floor. Talked about some others. You know, I think one of the one of the reasons why I like Nicaraguan Nicaraguans so much is that they're a visual people. You know, they they express themselves in in, in visuals. And of course, you know, I mean, I started out as a, as, a, as a print correspondent and a reporter, but, you know, ended up being a, a photojournalist uh, uh, who communicates with, with uh, imagery. And, 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 you know, we kind of speak, speak the same language, Nicaraguans and I. And um, 
the, the, the expression that you just uh, uh, voiced, uh, you know, con la lengua en el piso, with, with the tongue on the floor, um, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's um, an example, a good example of that. Another one, con los ojos cuadrados, with square eyes, which means <laughs> that translates into surprise. Uh, con dos dedos de frente, with, with, with two, only two fingers of, of forehead means that, you know, if your hairline is, is, is less than two inches above your eyebrows, you're, like, you're a Neanderthal person. <laughs> I had never heard that. Con, con, con el, el, la lengua en el piso, which you mentioned, with the tongue on the floor, means that you're just dead tired and your tongue is dragging right, on the floor. Right, right. You know, this I, is the way they express themselves, which is, to me, hysterical. And, and you know, there's a, a, the, the end of the, the, uh, the, the, that chapter... Um, um, that piece of that chapter, uh, you know, it, it, it deals with how profane they can be. You know, hijo de puta, son of a whore. Hijo de las cien mil puta, son of a thousand whores. You know, um, it, it goes on and on. <laughs> I wouldn't. I had heard about white people being referred to as cheles. Cheles, yeah. But, but then you have caras de queso. Talk to me about that. Faces of cheese. You know, <laughs> we're ta they're talking about white cheese. So you're a white guy as well. You know. <laughs> Oh, you got to love that. Look, you mentioned you started off in, in print. You're known as, as, as a photo uh, journalist. I was a print guy, right? So, I mean, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the elephant in the room among, among print and, and, and photo journalists is uh, photo journalists have an inherently more dangerous job than print people. Yeah, uh, I could I could report accurately on a story uh, five miles from the front, you know, uh, with the proper reporting. I couldn't get pictures. You had to put yourself in harm's way. And the pictures that you have produced, you talked about 10,000 of them are, are are remarkable. You know, talk to me about that. Uh, talk to me about that, how. Uh, the willingness of of people in your trade to put yourself at risk is that something when you go out when you sought out as you did when the, either when you went on on a patrol with the Sandinista uh, troopers themselves or with the Contras was yeah. that was that was that top of mind because you also wrote about that we lost some good people down there yeah. in in Central America we lost. You know, dozens of journalists in the time that I was uh, covering the region, um, um, you know, uh, foreign journalists, American journalists, European journalists, Salvadoran journalists, Nicaraguan journalists. Uh, but Nick, uh, is El Salvador turned out to be the most, the most, the most dangerous and the most deadly uh, uh, place. As a matter of fact, uh, two of my colleagues, one, a, a Dutch cameraman, Cornel Legros, was killed in March of 1989. The whole year, 1989, for me was a tough year. Uh, uh, that's when I was with, uh, you know, uh, a couple of colleagues when when Cornell was killed in El Salvador, um, and then in in November of 1989, um, and it's it's there's a there's a thunderstorm coming here. You're probably hearing that. Oh, I can hear that. Yeah. Yeah, but it, in 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 the of 1989, a British correspondent, David Blundy, was killed. In both of these instances, I was, you know, within 20 feet of, 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 of each of these uh, colleagues who were killed. And, um, you know, and this is one of the reasons why, why Nicaragua was, I mean, why El Salvador was, was always such a, 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 um, 
a questionable endeavor for me, but it was part of my my my, my territory. Um, and and one of the things that I enjoy mostly about about being a visual journalist, journalist Rick, is that it's both a, a an intellectual as well as a a a physical um, uh, challenge. Um, intellectual in the sense that you know we had to read the tea leaves of what was happening in any different country or in any uh, 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 you know different region or any conflict and figure out where we could go to you know, really capture the action and, and to get the essence of, of the story on film. And, and you know, in, in times of war, in countries at war, that means you have to be, you have to be you know, on site and on time when the shit is actually hitting the fan. Yeah. You, know, you can't show up 20 minutes late because you, know, you just missed the pictures by, by 20 minutes. So we had to be out there and putting ourselves in, in you know, some, some fairly serious danger. Um, I was conscious of this every time I, I went out, every time that I went to El Salvador, actually, and every time that I went, you know, up in the mountains with either the Sandinistas or the Contras. And I had, you know, when, when we journalists cover, I think, conflict on a consistent basis, we take precautions that help protect us or at the very least, they help sustain the illusion that we are protected. Mm. And, you know, this is at a time when, when, you know, I was very young. Well, you know, young, I was, you know, 30s, early 40s, uh, not like I am today. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm way beyond that. But when you're young, it's hard for you to imagine um, that you could get hurt. You, 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 you feel kind of invincible yeah, right. because you haven't seen enough of what bullets and, and, and explosives can do to human flesh and, and, and bone. And once you get a good sense of that, you know, if you're not concerned about that, then you're, you're, you're living in another planet that I'm, that I'm living at because it scares the hell out of me uh, now that I look back and read some of this stuff and think about, you know, what happened to people who were close to me when they were, when they were killed. Nice. Um, it's so a, I, I had, you know, these, 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 these trinkets that my family had bestowed upon me. You know, my mother was a, a devout Catholic. Uh, you know, all, all, most Italians are, especially the, the immigrant uh, generation. Um, I had an Aunt Carmela. I want to hear about Aunt Carmela. I loved her. She was especially, she was especially tuned into the other world. She believed in, you know, seeing, you know, signs. She would interpret different things that would happen in daily life. That, oh, that's not a good thing, or that's a bad omen, or that something bad is going to happen, or some person's going to die. You know, she was, you know, and she was very, very connected to the Catholic Church. Um, and I would, I would call my Aunt Carmilla because, you know, I would never call my mother and ask her to, to, to do this for me. But I would call Aunt Carmilla and say, Aunt Carmilla, I'm going to take on a really, really dangerous assignment. I'm going to be gone with the conscience for three weeks, or I'm going to El Salvador next week. I need you to protect me. Call on your, 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 your saints and, and saviors and, and ask them to keep me safe. And, and you know, she promised she, she, she would do that. She would. She, and, and that, and, you know, the little crucifix, the little amulets, the, the, you know, the, the good things that I saw in, in numbers and, 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 you know, wherever, uh, you know, in, in Sanates, these blackbirds who would visit my backyard in, in Managua, people mm. normally thought they were bad luck, but I thought they were great luck, and I would talk to them in English and say, how you doing? Protect me, you know? Mm. Like this, um, um, uh, I would employ all these folks and all these, these, these signs and, and beliefs to, to help sustain that illusion that I was not going to get hurt. Right, right. And you, talk, you, you, you talked about 
the maybe confidence or some might, might say the arrogance of youth that we don't think it's going to happen or perhaps we haven't seen enough of it. And yet you saw plenty, Bill, and you write in a chapter called My War, which is chapter 8, mm-hmm. about an incident that I found just absolutely chilling. Help me if I'm pronouncing this correctly. In Mukuluku, you know, Nicaragua, is that the name? Mulukuku. Mulukuku. Okay. Yep. Talk to me about coming across the scene you did with that family with the dead soldier in the coffin. You know, that was, it was one of the most moving uh, uh, episodes of the entire book, Rick. Um, and, and it was, you know, you know, when I think of these things and, and review the, 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 the pictures, the film that I still have, the notes that I took back then, um, I still get chills. You know, uh, uh, this was when a, a, a colleague of mine, a uh, Mexican photojournalist by the name of Arturo, and I went out with the Sandinistas and on patrol in, 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 in the mountains. And, you know, as I had in so many other uh, instances, uh, you know, I was ready to stay out there for, for, you know, weeks or days, whatever was needed to capture the war. And, and there are parts of the book that people may misinterpret. Uh, I don't want kids to get hurt. I don't want them to get, get, to get killed. I don't want them to, to get wounded, either, you know, one side or the other. Um, but my job... And my mission, and, and many of us covering these conflicts in Central America, uh, had a sense of mission. It's another thing that allowed us to swallow, the, you know, the the the, the fact that uh, uh, we could get hurt, um, uh, you know, it, because we saw this as kind of our Vietnam. Um, uh, but when 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 you know, so we went out to 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 cover this conflict, and what we needed, we needed pictures of of war. And, and war means people, you know, young men trying to kill other young men, young men getting wounded, young men getting killed. And, and those to, to be able to denounce the war, to be able to, do, to denounce U.S. policy that was orchestrating the war, I needed those kind of pictures. Mm-hmm. And, and despite the fact that, you know, you know, we walked for days, we were sweaty, we were dirty, we were, you know, our stomachs were upside down waging war against us for having, you know, imbibed bad water and bad food. You know, we stayed out there in the hopes that we would see something that we could use to denounce the war. That meant real war, bang, bang, you know, we call it in the craft. Yeah, yeah. So we go out, Arturo and I uh, are out with, with these soldiers, uh, and we get ambushed. And it was a violent affair. Uh, we make pictures of a, of, of a bunch of kids who got, who got wounded, but none of them died, I don't think. Um, we got pictures of, uh, of the wounded being carried out, uh, kind of like, you know, uh, strung along a, 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 a log uh, uh, from their hammocks. It looked like, you know, one of those old Tarzan movies where, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the white hunters uh, kill a tiger and, 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 you know, the locals are carrying the dead tiger out on a, on a, on a sling like this. Um, so we got those pictures, and we get back, and Arturo and I are ready to jump into La Bestia and, and you, know, you know, burn down the dirt road for a couple of hours to go home and, you know, to get decent food, you know, be around friends, be around our women, you know, whatever. And um, some peasants approach us and, and ask us to, to uh, uh, make a couple of pictures of a militiaman uh, who was killed uh, the day before. And, you know, we're exhausted, we're tired, we're still giddy from, from the combat but, you know, we think, you know, this is something that we have to do because these are the poorest of the poor. These people understand that we have the power 
as photojournalists, not just print journalists, but photojournalists, we can not only tell people what happened to their lives, but we can show people with these pictures. They get this. These are, you know, you know, uneducated, unsophisticated, um, untraveled uh, peasants. Uh, most of them can't read and write, but they understand that our role is there to, to document their lives, what happens to their lives as a result of U.S. policy. So Arturo and I go, okay, fine, let's go. So they walk us to this to this shed. It's basically a, a, a shed, you know, constructed on some poles stuck in the ground, four poles and a, and a, and a roof of black plastic. Um, it's all covered, and and one guy pulls open the cover, and it's steaming hot inside. And there's there's the dead militia man, in in a rough wood coffin, open coffin, and he's surrounded on three sides by his wife. His two kids. One of them is 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 uh, bre being breastfed by the mom. Um, um, his mother, his father, who is also a militiaman, and a couple of colleagues, militiamen uh, dressed in, in in fatigues, and they they were waiting for us. Hmm. They're 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 waiting for us to show us what happened. And what the was it the wife who said look what they've done to my life, show the world what happened here? If you look at the picture, and I look at it now, and the picture is in the book, in, in, in this current book, Wait For Me, and, and she never says anything to me, but she's the only person in, in, the, in the whole place that's looking at me. There's no Staring straight, I, straight, straight at the camera. She's looking straight at the camera, straight into me, and, and she's saying exactly what, what you said. Um, you know, she understands who I am. She understands what the situation is, and she says to me, not verbally, but but I get the message. She says, um, she, um, "Look at what happened to my life." Mm. She says, "Show the world what they've done here. Show the world what happened here." Mm. Wow! And so, you know, we finish making the pictures, and you know, Arturo and I are in my jeep, and I'm I'm, I'm my, my off-road vehicle, and I'm leaning on this thing as hard as I can to get the hell out of the mountains because it's starting to get dark, and, and you don't run around uh, in, in, in the dark up in those mountains because it's just suicidal, because you can get ambushed. And we normally listen to music. This way, you know, part of the book is devoted to the whole idea of rock and roll. Arturo and I are great for turning on music, but not up in the, the, the highlands of, 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 uh -huh. of uh, the country, up in the mountains where we don't want to walk into another ambush and get, get blown up uh, when we can't even hear what the hell is going on, you know, on the outside. But there's almost no discussion between Arturo and I on the couple of hours it takes us to get to the, to the uh, Pan American Highway on the way to Managua. And it's because I'm still listening to what this woman is telling me. She's mm -hmm. saying, you know, look at what they've done to my life. Tell the world what happened here. Wow. Wow. You know, the, the, you're talking about the, the university at, universality of the experience of war yep, and yep. how it changes you. And if you don't mind, if you don't mind for me to read an excerpt of your book where you say, this is from Bill's words in, in the book, Wait for Me, war changes not just what is inside us, but also the aura around us. Among men, I suspect among women as well, there is a regard, a respect, even a reverence for men who know war participation in conflict as a combatant or as one who documents combat is a permanent tattoo. We are marked forever. Most men who know 
real combat are reluctant to discuss it. We don't need to, but it's there. It's always there on us, around us. It follows us wherever we go. It's an interesting observation that you can only only bear those thoughts if you've borne witness, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just powerful, you know. Bill, talk to me about uh, Nick Rog was back in the news today. Yeah. Uh, and it's certainly relevant. And as a guy who lived there for over a decade, a guy who in, in your first marriage married into a family that had so bought into the revolution after the Samosa regime, believed with their hearts that this was the right thing to do. And now we see Daniel Ortega is back, one of the original Sandinista commanders who seems to be consolidating power in a way that seems worrisome once again. Where are we? Have we come full circle with this? or what? what it, I think we have become full circle, Rick. Uh, um, you know, going back to, to my, my Nicaraguan family, um, I'll I'll um I'll let your your listeners uh, uh, you know go through the book and and and, um, and read what happened to them. I don't want to give it all away, but I would you know they they um, their original um, absolute support for what was happening in the country. Um, I think uh, is, has 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 dwindled significantly um, because of what what's happening there now. Um, and we have come full circle, you know, in many ways, you know, in, in, in 2018, this is just three years ago, um, there were, you probably remember this, there was, a, uh, there was a series of demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations by mostly students who were uh, angry about uh, new laws being passed uh, uh, and affecting Social Security. And, and the, these protests kind of took on, you know, they, they kind of, wor- you know, morphed into something broader, uh, you know, against the regime, and, and the regime killed 300 and some, I think it was like 325 people, many of them, you know, peaceful students, young people, on the streets of, of, of uh, not just the capital, but, but around the country. Um, um, this, the level of intolerance and the level of violence used against these folks, I don't know that it's been seen, you know, even during the, the, the previous Somoza dictatorship. This is a hell of a hard thing to, to say. Uh, but I think I think that that's the case. I mean, no one understands what's inside the head of the current rulers of of of, uh, of Nicaragua. It, it's it's a frightening frightening um, look into what people are capable and how they can be affected by power. And I, I got to tell you, you know, um, we saw. And this is a lesson not just for Nicaraguans, and I don't want to sound alarmist here, but we saw some of this happening in our country not long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw what happens when people are misled, lied to, and encouraged to be violent. And, and you know, I think, you know, a lot of things happened with January 6th. I think we learned the lesson about ourselves, and I think the world learned the lesson about us as well. I don't think the world has the same regard 
for us today that it did before January 6th. Let's say we're talking to Bill Gentile. He's the author of Wait for Me, True Stories of Love, uh, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll about Bill's more than a decade experience covering the from 1979 through the 80s to the early 90s, covering the violence and the upheaval in, in Central America. It's been a terrific hour. I've had you on here, Bill. Let, let's, let's wrap it up with this. You know, I want to talk kind of generally about when Americans, you know, we're all busy people. It, it's hard for people to, people who may be working multiple jobs or certainly coming through this pandemic with the layoffs and the unemployment and the uncertainty and the illnesses to focus a lot more than just their survival. But when Americans view foreign policy, sometimes with a certain kind of almost a, a detachment that, that, that we watch as our government sends young men and women to war with little regard or really knowledge of the people or the country that we're warring with. You spent years on the front line, Bill. As a general sense, do you have any advice for any of us or our country and what advice you would have for those who who may be patriotic, which is a good thing, but should be questioning of any any foreign policy uh, that this country or any administration takes? You know, there's, and, and I don't want to look it up right now, but there's, there's a section in the, in the book um, that I try to explain, you know, uh, the background of, of Nicaragua. Um, and it, it's, uh, you know, I explain a little bit about the Samosas and a little bit about Sandino, from whom the Sandinistas mm-hmm. take their name. Sandino was a guerrilla fighter who, who fought the uh, U.S. Marines during the early part of the century uh, 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 when the, the Marines staged a number of interventions in Nicaragua. And, and Sandino, who, who wasn't a very educated guy, he warned, he issued a warning to Americans. He said um, something like, you know, be careful how you use or, and misuse power because every misuse of power hastens the demise of the one who wields it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it, we, we have misused our power in, in, in terrible, extraordinarily wasteful ways in, in my lifetime anyway. And probably the invasion of Iraq is the most vivid um, and the most horrifying example of that. But it, it, it not only... These these excursions, these these you know conflicts that we sponsor for so-called democracy and freedom, they 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 wound not just the the the, the persons uh, um, in these foreign countries where these battles take place, but they wound us as well. They wound every one of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Bill, here, here's a final question for you: D- Does it strike you? How does it strike you, or how does it move you? When you mentioned these more than 300 young protesters, probably mostly young, who were killed during the protest, the recent protests a few years ago in Nicaragua, uh, knowing that a lot of these, most of these kids weren't even born when you lived there, yeah. and, and and yet the cycle continues, and here we are, a full generation later, right? And you look down there and you go, what? What has been accomplished? Can you draw anything from that? You know, 
I think I think we spend our lives, guys like me, spend a lot of part of you know a significant part of our lives hoping, thinking that perhaps our work can change things, um, that can enlighten people to the point that they can take a better you know hold on the direction of their lives and the lives of their countries where they live. Um, Sometimes uh, I get the sense that we're really trying to roll a big boulder up a hill and it keeps rolling back down upon us. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, as I, as I say at, at the end of the book, um, when I'm trying to evaluate, you know, what I've done, what I haven't done, what impact has had, the, for, for journalists, and I think all of us have to keep this in mind, you know, we may not be like, you know, uh, um, the two journalists of the Washington Post who, who were re largely responsible for, you know, a president of the United States, in this case, Nixon, leading office. Our work may not have that immediate and, and powerful outcome. Um, but that's secondary, I think, in a way, um, to the fact that what we do as journalists, you, me, and it doesn't have to be people who are, who are covering conflicts, it can be people who are, who, are, who are doing work, you know, in their own communities and so forth, um, what we do is, is seek out truth and try to, to, to teach people with the truth. Um, um, and that in itself is honorable. And, and to me, it's, it's the most important gratification that I get out of the job that I've been doing for the past four decades. The act of, of being a journalist, the act of seeking out and disseminating the truth is sometimes the only thing we have as reward for what we're, we're doing. Very good. The book is Wait for Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll by my friend Bill Gentile. You mentioned earlier, I just want to wrap it up with this, Alan Riding, who was a terrific foreign correspondent for the New York Times, had this to say about Bill's book. Now, in his vivid memoir, Wait for Me, True Stories of War, Love, and Rock and Roll, Bill Gentile turns back the clock to the 1980s and thrusts us into the mountain mountains of Nicaragua, and the slums of El Salvador to offer what he calls a first-hand frontline account of the human cost of war. Bill Gentile, thank you so much for the time. I wish you luck, my friend, and we'll have you back on the next time you pin something like this. Yeah. I look forward to it, Rick. I really enjoyed the time with you, and uh, take good care. Okay, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Bill Gentile, everybody. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Centric Health of Bakersfield.